Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Churchwood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. Okay, Hebrews chapter one, uh, we're gonna finish up chapter one today. Last week, we covered three whole verses. Today, we're gonna jump in and we're gonna walk through verses four through 14. So let me just tell you real quickly, we started the book of Hebrews last week. I'm not gonna get into a lot of background. Uh, go back and listen to the podcast if you wanna get caught up. But remember, this letter was written much like a sermon. It was written in the 60s AD to a group of Jewish believers who were wavering in their faith. And so, uh, it's a mysterious writer. We don't know who the writer is, who the author of this letter is, but it was written more like a sermon and it was written to encourage these fledgling Jewish believers. Remember, we said uh, these believers, they didn't have a Bible to grab onto. So we're, we're just super spoiled today, right? We've got at least 50 English translations of the Bible today. That was not happening back in this time. It was a very word of mouth thing unless you happen to have a letter that was written to your church by Paul or somehow one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John happened to make it to your church. It's all word of mouth. So they had the Old Testament scriptures, but the new way of Jesus was really standing in contrast to that. And so now some people are going back to a Jewish way and, and the writer's saying, hey, listen, Jesus is worth following. In fact, he's better than, he's better than. And so he's really trying to coach them up. Remember, if you lived during this time and you were following Jesus, you were gonna be persecuted. At some point, you would be executed. If you followed Jesus and really uh, it was the passion of your life, you would die for your faith. And so last week, we walked through these first three verses showing that God spoke in the past through who? Prophets, yeah. He spoke through prophets, but then he says in these last days, he has spoken through his son, Jesus. And remember, we teased out the last days, that the last days were the days before Jesus returns. And because Jesus has not yet returned, we are now living in the last days. So you and I are living in the last days. In the past, he spoke to the prophets. Now he has spoken through his son and he goes on to say that he is a better priest because he gave a better sacrifice and he's a better king because he's a king over all kings. So think through that. Remember, God spoke through the prophets, but then in these last days, he has spoken through a better priest, through their whole Jewish sacrificial system and the, the Jewish hierarchy that had the priest at the top of the food chain. He's like, well, yeah, that's cool, but he's better. And then earthly authorities, every nation had a ruler and he's like, yeah, that's great. There are kings that sit on thrones. Jesus is better. Yes. 
And so we're gonna see him continue that thought today as he shifts from the earthly realm to the heavenly realm and prove that Jesus is better than angels, better than angels. Just as he has superiority over all earthly rulers, he's also better than all created heavenly beings. So as I unpacked this this morning, uh, I was going through Hebrews in my uh, time with the Lord back in, I think, late October, early November, and this passage specifically was a little confusing to me because there's not a lot of ramp up. He doesn't give a lot of context. And so um, I've got a Bible that I write a lot of notes in. And one of the questions that I wrote in my Bible is, what's up with the angels? <laughs> you know, um, because it, it, it's like, why is he talking about the worship of angels? Because we don't necessarily see in the Old Testament that people worshiped angels that wasn't really an, an Old Testament principle. But, but for some reason, he was really kind of honing in on, on this whole idea of, of deifying angels in some way. And so one scholar suggests that this letter was written with the church at Colossae in mind. So Colossae, we know uh, that Paul wrote a letter uh, to the church at Colossae called Colossians. And so one scholar says, well, he might've been referring to that. If you look in, in Colossians 2.18, he says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility, that's a good one, and what? The worship of angels disqualify you. So there was clearly a heresy in the church uh, as, as, as uh, heresy would be anything besides the, the gospel of Jesus. It is Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And now there were other uh, teachings that were sifting into the church because remember, they didn't have a translatable copy of the Bible at the time. And so there were people who were saying, hey, maybe we should worship angels and worship uh, this idea uh, of a visitation by angels. But let me just take it on a more holistic note. Um, there was a slide toward what, what one would call Judaic Christianity. And here's what I mean by that. So Judaic Christianity would mean that, man, I, I trusted Jesus and I started following Jesus, but then over time, when the heat started growing, I started drifting back in to a Jewish way of worship. So Jesus is the uh, premier sacrifice. He's a better priest because he offered a better sacrifice. And yet when push came to shove, maybe I would drift back into the synagogue and, and, and drop a little uh, animal sacrifice and ask the priest to, to give it on my behalf. And so they were losing their way and they were adding to. And so um, it, it's almost like it would look more Jewish and less Christian to follow Jesus. There was definitely a precedent set for angelic visitation throughout the Old Testament. And so this was maybe one way that they were sliding back in to an old way of thinking, an old uh, religious rule. So we said this last week, but let me remind you that um, the Old Testament is known as the Old Covenant. We spent about six months in Genesis and we talked about the Abrahamic covenant, uh, covenant that he promised to, to bless 
Abraham and his descendants. And remember, more than the sands on the seashore, the stars in the sky. And I'm gonna give you land and, and I'm gonna bless those who bless you, curse those that curse you. And so that Abrahamic blessing had gone uh, over centuries, right? And, and we see it in, in the Old Testament, this fulfillment. But here's what many of us think. Well, now we don't live under the old covenant. We live in the what? New covenant, right? The new covenant. When Jesus came, he's establishing a new covenant. Well, I'd love to reframe that for you a little bit because Jesus says something confusing in Matthew 5, 17. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So he is the fulfillment, the completion of the law, which means this. The old covenant is not null and void. It is a completed covenant, which means this. It means we're all grafted into this Jewishness, into the family of God. But here's what the writer is gonna reframe for us today, that all of these Old Testament laws, all of the rituals, all of that, it was simply a placeholder for Jesus. That Jesus is the completion and the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament sacrifices and prophecies and all of them are leading to him. And now he has completed it all. And that's why he is a better prophet, a better priest, and a better king. Okay, so the question is this today. Since you began following Jesus, so just, this is modern day, since you, the person in your seat, began following Jesus, is there anyone or anything that you have gravitated toward that has become a greater object of worship than Jesus? Okay, so if you have been a Christ follower more than 10 years, would you raise your hand and keep them up, okay? Keep them up. If you have been a follower of Jesus more than 20 years, raise your hand. More than 30 years, more than 40 years, more than 50 years, keep them up, more than 100 years. Okay, all right, just got to get all those hands down. Okay, so, so think about it. So for everyone that says I follow Jesus in the room, we're, we're kind of in this place, in this a spiritual battle and we, we want to become more like Jesus. But I want to see your hands again. How many of you would say today that there was a time in your life when, when Jesus had captured your attention and your affection more than what you're following today? Anybody? Thank you for your honesty. Yeah. Think about that. So what does it mean if we're looking at this uh, Old Testament idea that, or, or this New Testament idea in Hebrews that there were people that were going back to old ways of life? I mean, isn't that our nature? That we keep gravitating toward an old way of thinking? We keep gravitating toward an old way of living. And whatever captures your attention and affection it's what you worship. Yes. So Lou Giglio says it this way. He says, if you want to know what you worship, just follow the trail of your time, energy, and money. At the end of the trail is a throne and whatever or whoever is on that throne is what you actually worship. Wow. Amen. That's a convicting thought. 
I want you to think about it this way. So if you drew a pie graph for your life, what does that pie graph look like? Um, You've probably got your career in there. You've got your family. You've got your discretionary time. And, and, and somewhere on your pie, gra- pie graph, I'm sure you have your spiritual life, right? Because that's kind of, uh, that's actually in vogue today, right? Mind, body, spirit, right? And so somewhere you've got kind of a, a piece of the pie that is segmented out for your spiritual life. And so what is that percentage? Is it 20%? Is it, you know, you showed up this morning and so uh, you've got this piece that's reserved on Sunday mornings. So let me just kind of, uh, let me just put pie in your face, all right? Um, Jesus is not interested in your spiritual life. He's just interested in your life. And where we want to segregate and segment spirituality, he's like, hey, that's cool. I want it all. I want it all. I want to be the, the highest pursuit. I want you to give all your affection and all your attention to me. And then what does he promise in Matthew 6, I'll take care of the rest. When I am your highest pursuit, when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. Now in context, uh, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, what you eat, what you wear, where you lay your head, I'll take care of all that. I'm just inviting you into this adventure of faith where I'm your highest pursuit. And when I'm your highest pursuit, everything else will fall into place. Jesus is the foundation, we just sang it. Christ is my firm foundation. He is the foundation of all things. He is not the add-on. It is not that your foundation is in one thing. This is driving me crazy. Um, it's not that your foundation is one thing and then everything else is an add-on. No, he is the pursuit. He is the goal. He is the prize. Okay, so let's walk through these 10 verses, starting with verse four. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So it starts and it says, he became, he became. So uh, the context is in the verse before. In the verse before, it says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. So the context is there. He became. Well, what it's saying is when he had completed his task, when he was the better priest by offering a better sacrifice, that's purification for all sin for all time. That's why he's the better priest. It says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. And we decided that that makes him a better king, all power, all authority. He has the right to rule. And so that's why it's he became. It means he's accomplished his task and now he has become all powerful. But the question is, wait, was he not all powerful before? Remember, we've painted a very clear picture that Jesus, we've got the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So if if Jesus is fully God, then didn't he have all power in eternity past? Well, the answer is yes. And here, did he have to become on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection? The answer is yes. Okay, 
that's confusing, right? And so we look at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, each having their unique role. And so if you can imagine, so let me take you into it just very quickly. Imagine Father, Son, and Spirit and eternity past. They're having this conversation. They decide together to create the heavens and the earth. And so Father, Son, and Spirit create together. And then God the Father says to God the Son, hey, listen, you're gonna be in charge of saving the world we just created. And so he took on the role as the Savior. How do we know that? When we talk about the incarnation of God, the incarnation is God in the flesh. But what we know about the incarnation of God is that he was fully God, but what? Fully man. So I don't know about you, I know me. I am limited in nature. I am very limited in nature, right? And so because of that, I know that I have limitations because I am just a man. And it says that Jesus took on the limitations of being a man. And in fact, the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter two, he says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself what? Nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, so he made himself low. He stepped out of heaven and he took on the form of a man, limiting himself. And what happened? Verse nine. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is what? Above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, come on, y'all. So do you see he became? He became because he stepped out of heaven. He took on limitations. But when he said it is finished, it was finished. And now he, when he had given all of the purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. It means he's taking care of it now. Yes. So he became, but what did he become? He became superior to angels. And he, he gained a name inherited that is superior to theirs. He's given the name above all other names. The name of Jesus is the name of the high king of all kings. That's Jesus. Jesus is not just a king. He's king over all kings. Colossians chapter one, verse 16. For in him, all things were created. So he's the creator. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Get this, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, including angels, have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, which means he was with God in the beginning and in him, all things are held together. Do you see it? Yes. He is supreme, yes. superior, better than, Amen. better than. So as we move through the passage now, we're gonna see a bunch of Old Testament references. 
And so the Old Testament references um, are not exactly a one-to-one talking about Jesus, but what I love what the author does here, he has such a mastery of Old Testament scripture that he's pulling it in and, and he's, he's taking the name of Jesus and replacing it where God is. So what he's saying throughout the rest of this chapter is that Jesus is God. And so as he's, he's spelling out for us all of this Old Testament scripture, as he's teasing it out, what he's saying is all of these things that you ascribe to God, ascribe them to Jesus. He's one in the same. And so look at what he says first, verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Okay, so first he talks about sonship. And he says, no angel has ever been called son. So the sonship of Jesus Jesus is unique to him and him alone. He is the only, John 3, 16, the only what? The only begotten son. The one and only. The only way by which men can be saved. So he references here Psalm 2, 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And so he's taking this scripture in Psalm chapter two and he's like, hey, listen, this is about Jesus. This is about the sonship of Jesus. He is taking an Old Testament scripture and redefining it and bringing it into current day to say, hey, everything is pointing to Jesus. Or how about 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, this is David talking, but he's actually referencing Jesus. And so he's pulling these scriptures out to prove his point. Again, Jesus said it, if you've seen the father, you've seen me. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. We said that word representation is is the Greek word character, which means imprint. He is the imprint of God in the world. God in the flesh. If you needed to put a face to God, you've got it right here in Jesus. Sonship. So he's making the case that angels are subservient. They're created beings subject to Father God and Jesus is the eternal son. And so in the hierarchy of heaven, angels are below the son in pecking order. So again, think of it this way. In context, the original hearers are being reminded and inspired than in the old way of Jewish thinking and practice. Remember, they had been looking for a Messiah, but they were all looking for an earthly king. King David, the greatest king, they're looking for the next king to come and overthrow Rome at the time. They believed that this new Messiah was gonna usher in a new world order. And so because of that, they were still looking for the mystical. They were looking for a sign. And while initially they were following Jesus, when the heat came, they're like, ah, are there any other options? Is there any other uh, form of protection, God? But we see 
all throughout, especially the New Testament, that, that God was calling Jesus his son. Picture of sonship. Look at Mary. She was visited by an angel. And look in Luke 132. Look at what was said. He will be called, he will be great and will be called what? Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So, so here is this prophecy from the angel to Mary, calling him the Son of God. Luke 3, 21, when, when Jesus was baptized, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened. Do you remember that? That the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove? And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love and with you I'm well pleased. If you move over to Luke chapter nine, we know it as the transfiguration. And remember, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him and, and he gets up there and he has this powwow with Moses and Elijah. That would freak you out, right? And so that they're clearly physically present, having this conversation to the point that they're like, hey, let's just build a tent and hang out here for the rest of our lives because this is awesome. And what happened in that moment? God spoke. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. So it's this beautiful picture of sonship. Jesus had the position in the Trinity as a son, fully God, fully man, with a plan to redeem and restore the world. But look at verse six. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servant flames of fire. So God brings a firstborn into the world. Firstborn gets the priority, gets the favor. And so there's a picture of that. And then he says that angels are subject to him. That even the angels worship him. And so there's a reference to Deuteronomy 32.43. So in the uh, Septuagint, uh, I got that wrong for service, in the Septuagint, now what the Septuagint is, is it is the first translation of the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew to Greek. So in the early Greek writings, when you see in Deuteronomy 32.43, it says, rejoice you nations with his people. And then there's a clause that says, let all the angels worship him. Subsequent translations over the year, years, that has been lost. But in the original translation from Hebrew to Greek, it says, let all the angels worship him. Verse seven, he quotes Psalm 104, four, and speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. If we look in Psalm 1044, again, it's a direct quotation. He makes winds, his messengers, flames of fire are his servants. And so he's using wind and fire there. He's using nature to talk about uh, messengers. Those are angels. And, and that idea of fire right there, uh, seraphim, who are a sort of angelic being, yes. that defined are the burning ones. And so we see here this picture of he makes wind, his messengers, and, and his servants, 
fire, this whole picture of even nature is subject to him. Even nature is subject to Jesus. So the writer is making the case that not only are angels lower than the sun, but they actually worship the sun as a part of elemental nature. All of creation worships Jesus. And we said it earlier, we are part of all of creation. You were created to worship. You were created to worship and you all do it. You all worship all the time. The question is, what is the object of your worship? Because we were made to worship. We were made to pursue and, and, and we were made to, to, to shout out with a loud voice. Amen. I'll be worshiping at 5.30 today in my media room. Cowboys are playing the 49ers and, and I will be there. And I, I say that tongue in cheek, but if, if I'm really being honest, I've got a bit of an idolatry issue. Just walk in my office. There's a lot of cowboy paraphernalia, a lot. And y'all keep giving me more. Thank you. This is talking about this idea of worship. So we said it last week, but remember in the throne room, Remember the throne room. In chapter four, we see God on his throne and and everyone bowing down, the 24 elders bowing down and and, and singing, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They're singing over and over and over. Then you move into chapter five and remember who walks on the scene? The Lamb of God and he's holding the scrolls with the seal on it and he comes in and what happens? The whole place erupts in worship. In fact, in, in Revelation chapter five, verse 11, it says, and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. Any, any, any quick math on that? 10,000 times 10,000? A lot, right? I, I think it's this picture of innumerable that, that all of the angels, what are they doing? They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor yes. and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be the praise and honor and glory and power when forever and ever, forever and ever. This is the song that has been going on since we know of time began. Before in the beginning, Jesus was. When our time is no more, let me be more specific. When your time is no more, Jesus will be. He was. He is. He is to come. And so we see this picture of worship of the Lamb of God, Jesus, and the angels are actually leading the way. They're leading the chorus, but they are clearly subservient to Jesus. And today, just like the wind and fire, as part of creation, you and I were made to worship. Paul talks about it in Romans 8, 22. 
He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Groaning and crying out. Have you ever been reading the news or watching, you know, the nightly news and you're just like, come Lord Jesus. Is it fair to say our world is jacked up? Yeah, I mean, we live uh, right in the middle of brokenness. Uh, man, we're, we're as broken as at any time in our history. We are sliding toward godlessness and we are groaning, crying out. We should be groaning and crying out for more of Jesus, not less. Do you know why the world's so jacked up? Less of Jesus. If there were more of Jesus, there would be less uh, of what we see sliding into this brokenness. Amen. Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's better than and worthy of full attention, full affection. Look at verse eight and nine. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be a scepter of your kingdom You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So that is straight out of Psalm 45, 6 and 7. He's contrasting the throne of David with the throne of Jesus. And Jesus is in the line of David, but here's what we know about David even by this point, he's dead. He's dead. What's the difference between David and Jesus? Jesus is alive. He's alive. Remember, death was not the final word for him. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf. Hallelujah. Come on, y'all. That's good news. He is sitting on an eternal throne as an eternal king. So let me bring this down to where we can all relate. Um, This may not be an exact one-to-one, but um, I would say that the last two election cycles have shown us where our worship is. And uh, man, in Christendom, we got, some, we got some idol worship going on. Um, so we're not a monarchy, clearly. Um, but I would say that the White House is like a modern day palace and the president is like a modern day king. And it is so easy for us to get caught up worshiping presidents over Jesus. Here's what I mean for that, by that. Um, The challenge is to let your faith reside over your politics, not let politics reside over your faith. That at the end of the day, you care more about Jesus than who's in office. Why? Because Jesus is over whoever's in office. Because here's the thing, every four years or at most every eight years, there will be someone new in the White House. 
And while they are conceivably the most powerful person in the world for a given time, guess what? They're nothing compared to Jesus. And too often we get caught up wringing our hands and I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, that's between you and the Lord. But for a lot of people, we see it, we just line up with our ideologies, our political ideologies. We assign Jesus to our political ideologies It happens on both sides of the aisles and we argue our faith from politics. Something's wrong, y'all. Does politics have its place in our world? Of course it does. Do we need to pray and do we need to select good candidates to represent godly values? 1,000%. But here's the thing. When politics become your idol, when they become the highest thing in your heart, if you go back and scroll your newsfeed on Facebook and the things that you've posted... And that's what holds the highest place in your heart. Something's wrong. Amen. And this is this really pointed picture to us that Jesus is over all rulers, all authorities. We read it a few minutes ago in Colossians 1.17. It, it, it doesn't matter who's in office because Jesus is over all of them. Amen. By the way, on the landscape of politics, they're all pretty crooked, right? Both sides of the aisle, right? Hello, documents. Okay, so let's keep moving. Is that okay to say? (laughs) Are y'all okay? Yeah, all right. Thank you that nobody left. All right, here we go. Verse 10, he also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They'll all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. So he starts by quoting this passage in Psalm 102, verse 25, 27. And I can't get past in the beginning. So he's brought us all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and that's Jesus and the word was with God. He's taking us all the way back to the beginning of creation and saying before creation, Jesus was. In the beginning, the writer Again, proving the eternal nature of Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. And look at what he says in this psalm. It's beautiful. He says, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They perish, but you what? Remain. They change, but you are what? Constant. He'll close this thought in Hebrews 13, verse eight. You've probably heard it before. Where he says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. John, when he wrote Revelation, in Revelation chapter one, verse eight, God says, I am the alpha and omega, which means the beginning and the end, who is, who was, and who is to come. The reason that we say so frequently, Hebrews 4.12, the word is living and active, 
Because these are not just past tense stories. These tell us of the character of nature of God. They, they, these, these stories in this book tells us of who God is and how he works. It's not just describing, it's prescribing how we can have an intimate relationship with the Father. Amen. There's this beautiful picture that who he was is who he is. And who he is is who he will be. So you may be a train wreck. He's not. You may be all over the map. He's not. He is constant. I think about in my life, the most constant human person in my life is my wife, Yvonne. And she is just as steady as they come. Um, uh, she, just, she doesn't react most of the time. Um, she remains pretty constant. I'm like this. You know, I'm super emotional and I get amped up and, and, and she just kind of just keeps it steady. But you know where that breaks down? She's not God. Sorry, babe. Uh, she's not God. But Jesus is. And he is that constant. When you're pinging all over the map, there is an eternal nature of God, a constant nature of God. And he wants you to know that he can be trusted. He can be depended on. Why? Because we can look through the pages of this book. He's not changed. And because he's not changed, he will not change. Who he has been is who he will be in your life if you'll let him be. And when he transforms you, it informs your future. It's who you can become. It's who he is. So, maybe your attention and affection keep wandering to things to bring you fulfillment. So when we think about this idea uh, of worship, whatever holds the highest place in your heart, if it's not Jesus, it's an idol. So we'll just rename idol. And, 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 and some of you are like, well, I don't have any idols. I don't have any figurines in my house. You know, maybe it's 40 inches or 52 inches, 82 inches. <laughs> maybe that is a conduit by which you are receiving. Um, maybe you're worshiping a relationship. Maybe uh, you worship your spouse. You give so much attention and affection and concentration there at the expense of your relationship with God because you're trying to keep your spouse happy in some way. Maybe you're uh, in a dating relationship or a fiance, or maybe you're in a really unhealthy relationship. Maybe things are really south and you have given yourself over to idol worship, believing that relationship will bring you life. Uh, maybe it's your bank account. Maybe you're checking it all the time because there's a red line that you don't wanna go under and, and, and you're scared to death of what it would look like to not have a certain amount of money. Could that become an idol? Maybe career advancement. Maybe you become a slave to, to wondering, man, when's my next step? When am I gonna be promoted? And that becomes the thing that you pursue above all else. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe you're living vicariously through your children. And maybe they have become idols because you've got them in every select sport known to man because you are determined to, to live out your glory days through them. And that's become the thing that has become the goal. So here's the thing, 
is it okay to love your kids? Is it okay to love your wife? Is it okay to make a living? Of course. The problem is when those become the highest pursuit, when they are reserved for the highest place in your heart. So parenthetically, when we think about medication, and here's how I would define medication, alcohol, weed, pornography, shopping, binge watching. I mean, just fill in the blanks. So, so many times in the church we say, hey, uh, alcohol's the problem, weed's the problem, pornography's the problem. Well, actually, it's a symptom of the problem. And here's the thing. The problem is when you begin to medicate with those things, what you're saying is, my highest goal is out of whack. I'm no longer pursuing Jesus. I have chosen a lesser God and now I've got to medicate uh, this thing to bring me fulfillment. And so we've got to take stock and recognize, man, I've given myself over to something lesser that can never bring me the fulfillment that Jesus can bring. That's good. You were created to worship the creator. The eternal, constant nature of Jesus, he deserves your full attention. He deserves all of your affection. Why? Because he's just better. He's better. Whatever you're pursuing in front of Jesus, I would implore you, he's better. If you don't believe me, try it. And you'll find he's better. Jesus is better. So he ends this section. Uh, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? So one more time, he's just underscoring. He's underscoring that he is eternal. He is all powerful. He is sitting on the throne. His enemies are his footstool. What does that mean? Who we see as the enemy, Satan, he's nothing to Jesus. You wanna have victory over spiritual darkness in your life? It's about Jesus. That Jesus is the antidote for, for all of the spiritual darkness in your life. Yes. Why? Because he is over all the dark. His enemies are his footstool. Yes. Means he straight up stomps on the devil. And guess what? Christ in you, 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You have authority over the enemy. Somebody needs to write that down this morning. You need to wake up and realize that you've been losing a battle for a very long time because the enemy has you in a spin cycle of shame. And as a result, you have given yourself to a lesser God. No more. Take back the authority that is yours in the name of Jesus. Yes. Let him transform your attention and your affection. And he will rock your world yes. with the way he will use you. Amen. He sits on an eternal throne as king of the universe. Okay, so as we close today, um, spirituality is at an all-time high in our culture. Like, people aren't afraid to have spiritual conversations. Um, 
they just shy away from Jesus conversations, right? Because what, what is the way that people would say today? Hey, I, I do me, you do you, right? Don't tell me how to live my life. I've kind of, I've kind of, I've got my own version of spirituality. It's drifted into the church, by the way. Yes. You know, I would say in this room today, there are a lot of people that are living some version of Christianity that looks nothing like Jesus. And so uh, I think biblical literacy, understanding his word is in order. That's why we take our time as we walk through these books because we want to expose the truth of God's word that can actually transform us. And so we've got a lot of people in our culture left to their own devices to determine who, what, and how to worship. And then honestly, for a lot of us, we're following Jesus, but we're sitting it out. We're not engaged with the world. Some of you are scared to death. You're, you're, you're hiding in your house or in your backyard behind your fence because you're scared to death of all of the evils that are out here. You're scared to death of the world. And Jesus is saying, I died for that world. The people that you're most afraid of, he died for those people. And he is challenging and inviting you to be a part of the restoration of the world. A part joining him. And instead of living in fear about, well, I don't know what to say. Guess what? Today, you get to join the choir of heaven. But the choir of heaven here on earth, it looks a little different. We come into this room and hopefully you sing and you sing loud. But can we take a broader view of worship? Paul did, Romans 12:1. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And then what does he say? This is your spiritual act of worship. Could it be that you sing the loudest with your life by the way you live, that your family, your friends, your coworkers, your enemies, that you're singing a song, the song of heaven. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power forever and ever. And you, you sing that by the way you live your life. Maybe the call today, don't sit it out one more minute. That's not what you were made for. You are made to join the invitation from the eternal king, the one who is uncreated, the one who is a better prophet, a better priest, a better king, who is higher than all the angels, which means he's certainly higher than all of us. But we are invited to reign and rule with him. We're invited into this great plan, a plan to change the world. What would it be like for you to recapture that affection. Many of you raised your hand and said, yeah, I was closer to Jesus at one point than I am right now. That's normal. But John gives us, through the words of Jesus, this kind of prescription. In Revelation chapter two, he's talking to the church at Ephesus and he's like, hey, listen, I know your deeds. Man, y'all got it on lockdown. Y'all are doing so many great things. 
Y'all got 12 partner ministries, yo. Y'all are, y'all are giving to the right things. You even serve every once in a while. Some of you serve in kids ministry. What? He says, you're, you're doing awesome. But look at what he says in Revelation 2, 4. One thing I have against you, you've forsaken the love you had at first. Other versions say you've lost your first love. You've lost it. Then he gives us this beautiful prescription of how to get it back. Remember the height from which you've fallen. That gets me emotional because what I think about is I know that there are seasons in my life when I just feel white hot. And there are seasons in my life when I'm like, eh, I'm still gonna keep climbing forward, but I don't feel the way that I felt. Remember the height from which you've fallen, but then he says, repent. So what he's saying is, think in a new way about your sin. Whatever has caused you to plummet, repent. Get back in that mindset that I am the supreme ruler. Then he says, return and do the things you did at first. Do the things that got you to that place in the first place. You wanna rediscover your first love? For some of you, Jesus needs to come your pursuit for the very first time. For many people in the room, you need to recapture. He needs to recapture your full attention and your full affection because he's better. He's better. What a great invitation. Jesus, today, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're better. Thank you that you're always inviting us into more. And I pray today for every heart that we would have the courage to ask ourselves a hard question. Where have we given our worship away? And today we would begin to examine what it would look like to remember the height from which we've fallen, to repent or think in a new way, to to give it to you, and then to return and repeat the things that got us in the place where you were all that mattered. If that's you this morning, would you just begin to pray? And just pray very simply, Jesus, would you capture my heart? Would you give me new vision for what it looks like to follow you? And if you don't know Jesus for the very first time, Jesus, my way doesn't work. I need you to be the leader of my life because you're better. If you pray that or something like that, Jesus will come and live through the person of the Holy Spirit and he will change you, transform you as you give yourself over to him.